Today's businesses are using verification to prevent fraud. But doing that means that they're often collecting way too much personal data in the process. With increasingly strict data protection regulations, Evident offers a solution that lets companies successfully verify user data without the risk and expense of handling personal data. Learn more by visiting www.evidentid.com reset. The night sky, vast, dark, and if you don't live in a city like I do, dotted with stars. Over the last few months, a few more bodies of light have been spotted up there, and a Dutch astronomer caught them on video. Here's reporter Lauren Grush. And if you look at the video, it looks a bit like a line of glowing army ants. (laughs) Army ants? Yeah. Whoa, okay, so you're playing the video for me right now, and what I am seeing is incredibly bright dots across the night sky. They're way brighter than the stars. Oh, yeah, definitely. And from what I've heard from multiple people who've seen them, you can easily capture them and see them with your naked eye. It's, it's not, not difficult to find them. Has anybody mistaken them for UFOs? Oh, a bunch of times. <laughs> Wait, seriously? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that ship has sailed. Those glowing orbs aren't UFOs. They're satellites. And they were put up there by SpaceX, the private rocket company. So Lauren Grush, senior science reporter at The Verge, what's the company up to? So SpaceX is trying to build or launch a giant constellation of satellites known as Starlink with the idea of beaming internet coverage down to the Earth below. This isn't an entirely new concept. We already have satellites in orbit, and they can provide internet coverage as well. The problem is there is a bit of a lag because they're so far away. And so what SpaceX is trying to do is launch these satellites into a much lower orbit so that you can provide internet coverage in almost real time. So how many satellites would they like to launch into space? Well, because they want to provide global internet coverage and they're at a lower orbit, They have to launch quite a bit to cover the entire globe. And so SpaceX is proposing launching nearly 12,000 satellites. Whoa. But they want the option to launch 42,000 if they can. Total, 42,000 satellites. Yeah. Is that normal? That would be 21 times the amount of satellites actively in orbit right now. And so I've referred to it as a synchronized ballet of satellites dancing overhead. But we're not quite sure what this will due to the night sky right now, and we're kind of in the process of figuring that out. I'm really curious about this because you recently wrote an article about the criticisms that SpaceX, through its Starlink project, has received. Do you want to walk me through those? Right. Well, there are many in the space community that have expressed quite a bit of concern about the impact that this constellation will have. It really boils down to two major avenues, space traffic and space debris, And then also the impact that Starlink will have on astronomy from Earth. All right. So you mentioned space traffic and space debris. And I think that what you're talking about is something that is commonly referred to as space junk. Is that correct? (laughs) Sure. If you however you want to refer to dead objects in space. Yes. Space debris, space junk, space garbage, space trash. It's all the same. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what exactly is the issue with Starlink and space junk? 
it's pretty simple. So we already have quite a bit surrounding Earth in orbit right now, and not all of it is stuff that we want up there. So we have our active satellites, but we also have pieces of satellites that have broken off. We have spent rocket stages that are just up there filled with fuel waiting to explode. And Okay, sure. <laughs> totally normal. Totally normal. And the problem with this stuff is it's uncontrollable, and it's zooming around Earth at rapid speeds, so upwards of 17,000 miles per hour. And so it's when these things get close to each other and if they, heaven forbid, run into one another— that's a problem because they can create even more pieces of debris. That debris is also moving at thousands of miles per hour, and that can threaten other active satellites in space. You're talking about things crashing, like colliding and crashing together in space, right? right? It's very rare. It's only happened a couple of times so far. But the concern is with the more things we put in space, the closer these things come to colliding and and those kinds of real scenarios actually happening. So with Starlink, obviously, they're proposing putting up thousands and thousands of satellites. The concern is that it will up the risk of collisions in space and potentially cause more debris. And there's this concern that we could get to a point where there's just too much things in space And we can't really launch safely anymore because there's too much debris, too many satellites going around. Is that really a possibility? That's kind of the cautionary tale that everyone uses. If we don't take care of this environment, which is a finite resource, then that could become something that we have to deal with in the future. And that's really bad for us because as a species, we rely on space quite a bit. We have... GPS satellites in orbit, everything that you use on your phone, you know, mm-hmm. your your apps to, for maps, that all comes from space. So is SpaceX doing anything to try and prevent any collisions with the Starlink satellites? So one thing that SpaceX rolled out with its satellites is this fancy new autonomous avoidance system within the satellites themselves. So let's say I'm a Starlink satellite. Sure. Hurtling through space at ludicrous speeds. (laughs) And I get a ping that I have a slightly increased chance of running into a European satellite. What I would do then is make the decision to move out of the way however much necessary, I'd fire my thrusters and raise my orbit so that I would reduce the chance of any kind of collision happening between me and this other satellite. Okay, and you, the satellite, would make this decision without any human interaction whatsoever. You're just gonna thrust yourself up or down and get out of the way. Right. Now, SpaceX gets alerted when these maneuvers are going to happen. They can can then communicate to the other satellite operator, hey, our satellite's gonna do this. But that decision to move comes from the satellite itself. Okay, and this is new. Has this actually been put into action? No, this is really a novel process that SpaceX is implementing, and there's some trade-offs with it. So for one thing, it's great that it reduces human input on the ground, but at the same time, it's hard to simulate what these satellites are going to do. Right. So you can basically predict out to 32 hours of what the Starlink satellites are going to do. But that's not really enough time to maneuver effectively for other satellite operators 
who can usually see out to seven to 10 days in the future. So what you're saying is that because these satellites have the capability to sort of change their orbit, it's a lot harder to predict where these satellites are going to be five days out, six days out, seven days out, a month out. Right. Which is very different from more conventional satellites. Exactly. And being able to predict where satellites are going to be is key to making sure that we know where everything is and make sure that they don't actually run into each other in the future. It's kind of funny that the the solution to preventing collisions is making things more complicated. <laughs> it's true. I mean, with anything in space, when you make a design choice, there's a trade-off. And so right now, I think SpaceX and satellite trackers are trying to adjust to this new normal that the SpaceX satellites have introduced. So it's not a problem that can't be overcome, but it is interesting that something that's meant to help avoid collisions is actually making it a little more iffy to predict the future. (laughs) Okay, so they're launching these satellites with a a bunch of innovations, which also make them more complicated. What happens if they fail? So that is the other concern. So a failed satellite is a dead satellite. That instantly becomes space junk, especially if you can't communicate with it or you can't control it anymore. And one or two failed satellites is not a big deal. There are failed satellites in orbit right now, there right? Are. There are. And basically what you have to do is avoid them. They're like obstacles in the road that you have to swerve around and just be aware of where they are at all times. But like I said, one or two is not a big deal. But when you're launching such a large constellation, if you have a failure rate of 1%, that 1% becomes a significant number. Now, I'm not saying that's what the failure rate for Starlink is right now, but we just want to make sure that all of these satellites are operational and that SpaceX has control over them because we don't want a bunch of dead satellites in orbit at the same time. So at the beginning of this conversation, you mentioned that there are actually two big problems. And the second one had something to do with astronomy? Right. So I would say probably the most vocal outcry against Starlink has come from astronomers. And that's because when SpaceX launched its first batch of 60 Starlink satellites, everybody looked up in the sky and saw, oh my God, they are so bright. Is that normal for satellites? So it depends on a lot of different factors. Because satellites orbit high up, they still catch the sun's light even when we are in darkness here on the ground below. But it also depends on how high they're orbiting, how they're oriented. So There are a bunch of factors. Yeah, there are a bunch of factors. But when it comes to Starlink specifically, it's something about the satellites that make them so bright. SpaceX also said it had something to do with how they're oriented. They have these really long solar panels that might be reflecting more sun. And also, since they are so close to Earth, they're going to be much brighter than if they were orbiting farther out. Okay, so these satellites are obviously really bright. They're hard to ignore. Why is this a problem? So it's definitely a problem for astronomers because... In order to view distant objects in the universe, they need to take these long exposure images of the night sky where they let a lot of light in for long periods of time so that they can gather the light from these really far off objects. 
And whenever a super bright object passes overhead, it'll leave this long streak across the image. Like a trail of light? Basically, yeah, because it's collecting all of that light as it passes over the image. And so it can really mess up sensitive observations that need, you know, nothing overhead in order to be as accurate as possible. If it was just a 1,000 or so satellites, they say it could be manageable. But the fact that it's 12,000, potentially 42,000, that is what is really making everyone so concerned. Is SpaceX aware of this problem? Oh, they're very aware. Because uh, astronomers have been very vocal about it. Oh, okay, great. So ever since that first launch, there has been this outpour of people saying, oh, we need to do something. How can SpaceX have these licenses to launch these satellites when they're doing this and they they pose this threat. And really right now, there's not much stopping SpaceX from doing this. SpaceX has uh, licensing from the Federal Communications Commission to launch nearly 12,000 satellites. SpaceX is hearing the community and they are taking steps to address the problem. On the third launch of their satellites, one of the satellites was coded to make it appear dimmer in the sky. One out of 60? One out of 60, yes. It was an experiment, an ongoing experiment, and satellite trackers are actively tracking this particular satellite to try and measure its brightness compared to the rest of the bunch. This lonely satellite is like the hope for our night sky. (laughs) Right. They've nicknamed it DarkSat. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there's some skepticism that this will actually do the trick just because these satellites are so bright already. It would take quite a bit to lower them. But we'll find out. (laughs) It's kind of, I have to say, it's kind of interesting for me to hear this issue with the Starlink satellites because from what I understand, like Elon Musk, the guy who runs SpaceX, Like space, right? Presumably, he would want the night sky to not get ruined. And he said as much, and so have SpaceX officials. They're they're very clear in that they do not want to be any kind of hindrance for the astronomy community. The problem is the astronomers don't like the the steps that SpaceX is taking. They don't like that the, the fact that SpaceX is continuing to launch these bright satellites, even though... They've only tested out one, and they don't even know if that coding's going to work yet. They would prefer if they stopped and figured out the brightness problem and then launched once they had solved it. Yeah, proceed with a more scientific method. Right. But that is not SpaceX's way. <laughs> so you mentioned at the top of this episode that the end game for SpaceX is to bring high-speed internet to people across the globe. Why is SpaceX trying to do this? Well, first, there's the altruistic reason. You know, you can't lay fiber everywhere. There are certain communities that don't have access to the Internet. And so their goal is to bring as many communities online as possible. But I think the bigger reason for SpaceX as well is that they kind of want to break into becoming a consumer-facing product. So... Right now, you and me are not really involved in the SpaceX process. We are not launching any satellites. We're not going to pay SpaceX for anything. But with this product, you and I could connect to the network once it's fully operational. So that way it opens up the possibility of more people buying in and increasing revenues in the future. It's a way to fund the rest of SpaceX's work. Yes. So how long before people can actually in a widespread way, buy internet access from SpaceX? 
So SpaceX has claimed that they could start rolling out coverage as early as this year. It's a bold claim, but they've already launched three launches so far, and they're starting to pick up in pace. Lauren Grush is a senior science reporter for The Verge. Lauren, thank you for talking to me about this. Thanks for having me. A significant portion of the human species is still offline. After the break, we take a look at the problem SpaceX wants to tackle. This is Reset. Everybody has to do taxes, but not everybody feels super comfortable doing them on their own. Which honestly doesn't seem right, because you're doing really cool things all the time with your life, and shouldn't you also be able to do your taxes? TurboTax believes that with the right tools and encouragement, people can be good at anything, even taxes. And to help people feel more comfortable with the tax process, TurboTax Live gives you personal access to experienced CPAs and EAs who are there for you, even on nights and weekends. And they're happy to go through your return with you, line by line, to double-check that you've done everything right. So you can be sure to get your best possible refund and feel 100% confident in your taxes. TurboTax. All people are tax people. Starting a business is difficult. It's not something that you just do willy-nilly because you have to spend a lot of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter just building the business up. Bottom line, you end up being super busy. So why not make things a little easier with FreshBooks? FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you way more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumpled receipts. Create and send professional-looking invoices in 30 seconds, and then get them paid twice as fast with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. Join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it for free for 30 days, no catch and no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com reset and enter Vox Reset in the how did you hear about us section to get started. That's freshbooks.com reset. Sonia George, executive director at the Alliance for Affordable Internet. How many people in the world right now don't have access to the Internet? Well, actually, about 50 percent of the world's population does not have access to the Internet. But to tell you the truth, that number is not even what worries me the most. Okay, It's not just that 50 percent of the people don't have access, but the problem is that it's a lot worse than that if you actually break it down across the regions of the world. So if you look at Africa, for example, only just about 28% of the population has access to the internet. In the Asia-Pacific region, is closer to 50%. Mm. And so the divides are huge. And if you look at the least developed countries in the world, the poorest countries, it doesn't even get to 20%. So what you're saying is that things aren't evenly distributed across the globe. Exactly, exactly. Not only they are not evenly distributed, but the divides are widening in a very worrying rate because growth is really not moving as fast as it used to in the last decade, frankly. So the the rate of growth has really slowed down 
And what we see is that in those regions where there's already a great divide, we're not moving fast enough to close. And so therefore, the kind of global digital divide is actually increasing. And the other thing that is really important, uh, Ariel, mm -hmm. is that when you uh, go from the global level to things like the digital gender gap and the rural gaps, the situation is even bleaker. When you talk about the gender gap, what do you mean exactly? Well, sadly, women are less likely to have access to the internet than men across the globe. Mm. So it creates these complexities within these divides and internet access that we really need to be very conscientious, not just about bringing technology, but bringing technology that will be accessible to everyone, not just to some or to the elites mm -hmm. or to the urban populations, etc. So what's at stake when we talk about people not having reliable Internet access? What are countries missing out on or communities missing out on? Not having Internet access, we actually are increasing the inequality and, in fact, excluding all of those people from the opportunity. The reality is that the economies are changing so fast and changing towards digital platforms. Mm -hmm. And because so much change, including the, the own governments, moving a lot of their public services to digital platforms without guaranteeing that everyone has access to the Internet, mm -hmm. those who are already excluded from those services now and live in an equality situation are continue to be uh, further excluded, but in fact, they're going to be more excluded because the only way to to get to those services, it's going to be more difficult to them, right? It's going to be more costly. So I'm really glad you brought that up because actually one thing that I've noticed in New York City recently and specifically near my apartment is that a lot of the timetables for buses are being removed right now. So it used to be that you could just go up to the bus stop and take a look and find out when the next bus would arrive. Now the only way to know when the next bus is arriving if you're already at the bus stop is by using your phone. You can either text or you can look up the timetable online. And to me, that seems like a big problem because not everybody has a phone. Absolutely. And so and that's New York, right? And we didn't, whoever came up with that decision was not really thinking about the fact that even if many people have smartphones, many do not. And who are the ones who do not? Right. Are most likely the ones who are already marginalized and poor and have limited resources. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very complicated. It's a problem. And we need to be careful to make sure that, again, as you pointed out with your example, that we're not increasing the inequalities and not creating uh, new problems because of this push to basically assume incorrectly that, that everyone has access, that everyone has access not just to um, a smartphone in this case, but to a data plan to go with that phone, which is not the case. Okay, so internet access is a huge problem. Why can't we just fix that tomorrow? So there are a few key, very major obstacles. First is affordability. For people to be able to afford, we need to also have um, the enabling environments and the investments that are required to change that picture of affordability. So if we start with uh, the enabling environment to lead us to affordability, and this is what we are working on, we need to make sure that markets are more competitive, that competition really works for the people, right, to reduce costs. So having lots of companies that provide internet all at once. For example, 
Yes, lots of companies, different kinds of companies. One of the challenges of affordable access in the world is that we need to be sure that we have a system that allows smaller ISPs, smaller operators, cooperatives, community networks to succeed to provide access because they are the ones mm. who are closer to the people and actually are more interested in providing the most affordable services to the people that are unconnected today, right? Ultimately, whatever innovation we be, we are focusing on, we need to consider that the world is not just a wealthy world. Mm -hmm. And we're not developing technology and innovation. And this is where the engineers need to be a lot more closer to the people if they're in innovations, inventions, and um, you know any kind of new opportunities come up. They need to be closer to the people because if they are all fantastical and magical, but they're far too expensive and no one can afford, I'm sorry, but that's not really good engineering, right? I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the innovations that we're focusing right now, the innovation that we focused on in this episode, is satellites. Are satellites actually a good way to provide Internet to places that don't have it? And, and why is that? They can be, especially if the service that... Um is going to be provided using that technology will be affordable, okay? I want to make sure that we don't lose track of that because for us, you know, satellites already could be providing a lot of these services in many places, right? But the fact is that they're very, very expensive. So the new technology in satellite engineering is about coming up with solutions that are reducing the price and that are also increasing the reach of the satellite technology, right? And it would be great if they are able to do that. The reality, Ariel, is that we haven't seen that yet. There's been some interesting pilots, some interesting projects testing the idea, um, but there's no real example yet. There's no real experience yet of these new technology providing that kind of service at affordable rates in developing countries. With that in mind, what do you think of Starlink? What do you think of SpaceX's attempt to make this happen? Well, again, I mean, just like all the others, it's not only a great attempt. I think it's a great project. I think it has really good intentions. It's like I was saying earlier, technology needs to work for the people, not the other way around, right? It's not people having to accommodate mm. to the technology just because, you know, some of us or someone thought of it as an interesting opportunity. If it doesn't work for the people, it's not good enough. And working for the people, it means that if Starlink is going to provide internet access services in, say, the rural areas of West Africa where we work, then it's not just men first that should be able to access that internet service, but also women, that those satellite links and the constellation will be sufficient and strong and powerful so that public access becomes more of a reality. If that's not going to be the case, it's going to be another wonderful technology that is going to compete with other existing technologies, bringing satellites again to the forefront of where they used to be decades ago and they kind of lost some track, right? But it will not serve the unconnected of the world. And those are the ones that I'm most concerned with. Sonia George is the executive director of the Alliance for Affordable Internet. I asked Lauren Grush, the reporter I spoke to in the first half of the episode, how much SpaceX's internet will cost. She said that SpaceX hasn't disclosed any specific numbers yet. But on a call with reporters back in May, Elon Musk said that for folks in the developed world, Starlink would be a competitive option. We reached out to SpaceX for comment. A representative sent us a line from the company's mission statement. It reads, 
Starlink will deliver high-speed broadband internet to locations where access has been unreliable, expensive, or completely unavailable. I'm Ariel Demros. This is Reset. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We publish episodes three times a week, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. We'll be back on Thursday. Later, nerds. (laughs) 